So yesterday, as John mentioned already, was Halloween, and you know that, of course. But what maybe you don't know is the, the great providence of having a sermon from Revelation 7 on All Saints Day, which just worked out perfectly. As John described, you know, All Saints Day, ha- Halloween is, is Hallow's Evening. It's the evening before the Day of the Hallow, the Holy Ones, which is All Saints Day. And um, we don't, in our church, observe the entirety of the church calendar, but it's helpful in many ways. Christmas, Easter, we observe those things. And All Saints Day is a good day as well, a day that we remember the saints who came before us. And here in Revelation 7, you actually get to see something that you normally can't see. You get to see all the saints together, both from God's point of view and from John's point of view, And this is what you see in Revelation 7, so follow along with me as I read on page 6 of your bulletin or in your Bible, either one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. And 12,000 each from the tribes of Reuben and Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed as well. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. (coughs) Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to understand and to see the great thing that You see here in this passage, in this chapter of Revelation And change us, Lord. Make us new. Turn our hearts more and more, even this morning, towards you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
seated. As John mentioned a moment ago, our new member class for the fall is joining us next Sunday morning, a, a small group of people this fall. And so we had our member class recently to sit and talk through some of the theology of the church and what New St. Peter's is all about. And after one of our sections at our house in the class, one of the folks from the class asked me a question about a term that we had referred to moments before. They said, what is the invisible church? That's a great question. Really, really a great question. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which we refer to as a church often in our theology, uses that term, invisible church, and correspondingly, visible church. What are those things? Well, basically, they are the church from two different perspectives. From the point of view of us, seeing what we are able to see as fallible and limited human beings, we can see the visible church. That is, all of those who visibly associate themselves with a local church and claim the name of Jesus as Christians. That's what we can see. But we can't see the hearts and souls of men and women and children. We don't know who they are exactly as God knows them. What God sees is the invisible church. He sees the church through all the ages, from the very beginning to the very end, those who have been Christians, those who are, and those who have yet to be. He sees them all. And in Revelation 7, you get to see the invisible church. It's a privileged view. Revelation, this book, as I mentioned before, is, as I would call it, the capstone of Scripture. It's the summary of the entirety of the Bible. And it shows us fascinating snapshots from redemptive history, all from different angles in order to highlight some different aspect of something that we ought to see. And a few weeks ago, you remember, we looked at Revelation 6 and saw the breaking of the seven seals on the scroll which the Lamb had taken from God on the throne. And those seven seals revealed the evil and suffering that we know in this world. That was the thing of redemptive history that that angle wanted for you to see. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, you remember, coming and bringing their, their fury and their disaster, unleashing it on the earth. And the saints were sheltered. Do you remember that? They were sheltered under the altar of God. And the day of judgment came with the sixth seal and God's wrath coming upon the earth. And before the seventh seal breaks... A question is posed that puts the whole scene on hold. Do you remember the question? The kings and the great ones and the generals and the wealthy ones, the powerful of the earth, all of whom were fleeing from God and His wrath, asked a question, who can stand? Who can possibly stand in the face of God's wrath? That was their question. And before the seventh seal comes, the seventh chapter gives the answer. We just read it. It's a skeptical question. It expects a negative answer, given the brutality of, of evil and suffering in the world of the four horsemen, and given the fearsome wrath of God in the sixth seal. The, the assumption of the question is, nobody can stand. Surely nobody can stand in the face of these things. But the angels can stand. Verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing, 
But it's not just the angels, of course. There's a mass of people in verse 9 who are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The skeptical question gets a very surprising answer. And the answer is this. The invisible church can stand. The invisible church can stand and John gets to see it and he gets to show it to us. And as he does, what do you see? You see a multitude that can't be counted. Now, the the old Hebrew poets in the Old Testament especially were fond of their poetic devices, one of which was parallelism. And you know this, if you've read any of the Old Testament, the Psalms especially, you see it all the time. For instance, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Okay, one sentence, one great truth, but two different ways of saying it. They're in parallel with one another, right? You, you see that all throughout the Old Testament. And it's done that way, not just for emphasis, but also to stir your imagination, to provoke your heart and your mind and enable you to understand the profundity of what's being communicated. And that's what's happening here in Revelation 7. The whole chapter is one great truth stated two different ways in parallel. Okay, so verses 1 through 8 show you how God sees the invisible church. And then verses 9 through 17 show you how it appears to John as he's able to see it. From God's perspective, it's very precise. From John's perspective, it is absolutely innumerable. Right? I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And that's a great encouragement to John. It would have to be. To you and me, it's really not hard to imagine such a thing. An innumerable, vast amount of people praising God. We don't have a hard time imagining such a thing, I think, because we live in the age of megachurches, right? Do you know Do you know what is the largest church in the world? It's not in this country. In South Korea, there's an Assemblies of God church, which I don't remember the name of it. It's 50 or 60 years old now. The last I heard, its membership exceeded 800,000 people. I don't know how you can be a local church with 800,000 people. I mean, that's a city, right? That's a, that's a mega church bigger than all mega churches. Dallas is mega church city. You know, we, we think of such big churches in this place. And it always kind of humors me and pleases me with a new member class. And this is without exception, always, in every new member class, one or two or three people say, I was drawn to this church because I wanted a small church. Now, you have to understand, relative to most of the world, this is not really a very small church. In our denomination, there are 1,500 churches in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. Just to give you kind of a picture of this. There are 1,500 PCA churches, and among those, only 46 have more than 1,000 members. 97% of the churches in our denomination are smaller than that. And our church is bigger than most of those. But we know there are so many Christians out there. As American Christians, we're trained to think of ourselves as the majority. We, we kind of imagine multitudes of Christians, but we're, we're not. You know, the, kind of the profound summary in the words of a friend of mine about what John is seeing here, this multitudes of people, the profound summary of this is 
lots and lots of people are going to become Christians. This is what Jesus wants for John to see because it would be a great encouragement to him. To a first century Christian like John, it would be very hard to imagine this. Very, very hard. I told you a few weeks ago that I've been reading a book by a sociologist. The book is called The Rise of Christianity. And he's doing what sociologists do, which none of the rest of us do. They just kind of count up numbers and figure out people and try to sort through data and and figure out what trends look like in society. And he's been studying the, the early centuries of the church to see how is, how is it this, that this thing became such a, a worldwide religion as it did. And, and in his sociological data, he kind of goes through some of the numbers from the book of Acts and then beyond that. And he estimates that around the year 100 AD, just you know, a few years after John had written this book of Revelation, 100 AD, there were probably about 7,500 Christians in the world. A world populated with roughly 60 million people. I mean, just a fraction of less than 1% of the entire population. Christians. For John, it would be so hard to imagine a multitude of people claiming Jesus. It would be impossible for him. And so to John, it's a great encouragement. To the seven churches that he wrote to and sent this revelation, it would be a great encouragement for them to imagine this is what God has in store. This is beyond us. To you and me, it becomes not just a great encouragement, but also a strong exhortation because the multitude is not just innumerable, it's also diverse. Look, the gospel, the point of this is, is perfectly suited for any and every culture at any and every point of history in the world. The theme of Revelation, a theme among it, is what you read here in this passage. Back in chapter 5, the Lamb has taken the scroll from the Father on the throne, and, and the elders praise Him, saying this, Worthy are you, for by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And now, this is what John sees People from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's a perfectly diverse crowd. Now, I know that's not necessarily new to you. you. You know that. You've heard that. You recognize that. But the exhortation here is this. When someone else becomes a Christian, don't expect for them to become like you. When someone else becomes a Christian, don't expect for them to become like you. Because the gospel is perfectly suited for every culture at any time in the history of the world. One professor and church planter who thinks of these things often made an interesting point as I heard him kind of evaluate some of this stuff. He said that, you know, the, the, the world's religions, man-made religions, tend to be ethnocentric and geocentric. In other words, for instance, Islam in all of its hundreds of, years of, hundreds of years of existence, has, and still is, predominantly a Middle Eastern and North African religion. Of course, Muslims live around the world and have migrated in, to other places, and people have, have turned to Islam and other cultures, but by and large, it's a Middle Eastern and North African religion. Hindu is, after ages and ages, still almost exclusively an Indian religion in South Central Asia. 
Buddhism and Taoism and other similar religions for all of their ages, older than Christianity, have been and still are almost exclusively a Southeastern Asian religion. But Christianity, being born in the Eastern Mediterranean with the birth and life and death of Jesus, became European and then it became North American. Now granted, those two are basically the same thing on different sides of the ocean. But nowadays, maybe you know this, the geographic and ethnocentric center of Christianity is not North American. And you know it's not European. It's more Asian and South American and African. In other words, Christianity is the one religion in the world that is truly accommodating of every culture and every ethnicity anywhere at any age. Now, I've mentioned this before, and and I really just can't get beyond it, that in our station in life, kind of the, the era in which we live, the world is characterized by refugee crises and immigration confusion. It's not just this country. It's all around the world. You know it. It's, it's all over the news all the time. It's a prevailing theme. And it is literally reshaping the face of world society. It's fascinating to think about, really. But it's not new. It's been going on for ages as the world has gradually become smaller and smaller and smaller. I've seen this commercial on TV. Maybe you've seen it too for Ancestry.com. There's this, this guy, he's standing there, he's just a Caucasian-American guy, and he's touting, I think it's his German heritage. He's saying, we thought we were German, we were Lederhosen and celebrated with our beer steins, and we were German. And then I went to Ancestry.com, and I, I spit in the jar, and I sent it in for my saliva DNA sample, and they gave me my results. And I learned that I'm actually Scottish. And so I traded in my kilt, my, my lederhosen for a kilt, and I'm sure his wife was really thrilled about that. <laughs> Ancestry.com's shtick is that we will help you to uncover your ethnic mix. And they suggest the, the many stories on their website and their clients, so to speak. And I don't, I don't know anything about the accuracy of these sorts of things, but it's an interesting sort of deal. They say that some of our folks are 33% Irish, 28% Scandinavian. South Asian, 13% Greek, and 8% African. What's your ethnic mix? Now, it's it's interesting to to think about that. I mean, 2,000 years ago, I suppose, and I'm no sociologist, but I would suppose 2,000 years ago, ethnic groups generally didn't mix. I mean, before the the age of trains, planes, and automobiles, and and the age of uh, telephone and email and Facebook, you know, ethnic groups generally didn't mix so much, but the world has become smaller and smaller. And ethnic groups are mixing in relationships, friendships, marriage, and so on. Now, many people are terrified of this idea. Maybe especially Christians. Actually afraid of the idea that ethnicities are being mixed and mingled because somehow, and I don't know where this kind of idea came from, but we have this notion of being pure-blooded. And we take pride in it. I mean, you see it in pop culture. Harry Potter. You know, what was it? The biggest battle he fought was against the the evil, dark people who were out to be pure-blooded. And we've seen that unfold in history, in real life, in so many different ways, at different points. But who actually is a pure-blood? And who isn't cross-cultural? You know, every marriage, husbands, wives, if you hadn't figured this out, let me tell you, every marriage is cross-cultural. 
I mean, the color of your skin and your ethnic background is important. It's an important part of who you are, but it's just one of the elements that makes you cross-cultural with your husband or your wife. Every friendship is cross-cultural because we all come from different cultures. Now, I'm not advocating for the complete genetic mixture of all the ethnic groups. That would be kind of weird in whatever direction you want to take it. It's not the point. But the gospel is advocating for the dignity and the beauty of the image of God in all the ethnic groups. And the point is this. That person, you know, that person is more like you than they are different from you. That Hindu guy down the street who's the information technology guru, he's more like you than he is different from you. The Chinese woman who runs the donut shop in the strip mall, she's more like you than she is different from you. And the Mexican family that mows the grass down the street on Saturday morning, they are more like you than they are different from you. And as Christians, we should rejoice in that truth because the invisible church has a heritage, a heritage that can't be erased. Okay, from John's point of view, the multitude is huge, isn't it? It's an, it's an encouragement, an exhortation to him. But from God's point of view, there's more there. There are five angels in this scene, right? Five angels. Four of them, symbolically, are withholding a wind that would bring harm to the earth. And the fifth angel has a seal and also a word from God. And that word is, no harm allowed until the servants of God have been sealed for him. Interesting. What's the deal with this? Now, remember, the book of Revelation is not, is not a sequence of events given to you in chronological order. It is not that. It is rather a, a, a grouping of different visions that all look at the same thing from different perspectives. And you're going to go up into history and then you're going to come back and you're going to go back into history and come back. There are flashbacks again and again. And here's one of them. These four angels who are holding back harm, I think they're actually holding back the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are in the context of that scene in Revelation 6. They're holding back the four horsemen and all the harm that they would bring so that the fifth angel can perform the symbolic task for God of sealing his people. God is claiming his people and the four horsemen are not going to take them away. Now, John hears a number here, doesn't he? He hears a very specific and exact number, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The number is symbolically important. I don't want to skip that. The number, 144,000, 12 tribes of the Old Testament times 12 apostles of the New Testament times 1,000, which is a lot, and you get a perfect number. This is God's invisible church, and he knows every one of them. But the heritage that it's tagged with here is very profound. What is it? It's Israel. It's Israel. Twelve tribes times twelve apostles times an innumerable amount, and all of them are sons and daughters of Israel. Paul, the apostle, also wrote of this sort of thing in Romans 11. He's explaining to the to the Romans, 
why some of the Jews rejected Jesus. How could that happen? And Paul wrote this. He said, I want you to understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, that is, upon the Jews who have rejected Jesus, until the fullness of the Gentiles, that is, not Jews, but whom God has sealed, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, Paul writes, all Israel will be saved. In other words, Israel is the Jews, but it's not just the Jews. It's much more than that, Paul says here. If you're a member of the invisible church, if you're a saint, a believer in Jesus, then whatever your ethnic mix might be, you have a heritage that goes all the way back to the very beginning because the peoples, plural, of the world are to become the people, singular, of God. Now, you're probably like me in that you have or had grandparents who wanted for you to know who your people are, right? You can remember stories like that from grandmother and grandfather, I imagine. Your people, you know, like Uncle Monty and Aunt Imogene from Oklahoma, they are your distant relatives that you might see once a year, if ever, and they are your people, your blood relatives. But you were made to belong to a people, and you don't see your people all the time. And so we group ourselves with people, together with others. It's just how we're made. You know, kids, you, you young ones, you know this already. It doesn't take you long growing up to figure this out. You group yourselves with other kids. At, at school, you have your school friends. At church, you have your church friends. Maybe you have your sports friends. Maybe you have those particular kids with whom you sit at lunchtime in the cafeteria. You group yourselves with other people. As you grow older, that really doesn't change. It just takes on different forms. People join fraternities or sororities. They join clubs. They associate with neighborhoods and work affiliations. We gather together with groupings of people, and that's not bad. In fact, it's inevitable. It's a reflection of how we're made to belong to a group. But all these groups change and fade with time. I mean, I remember back at, to the, the street where I grew up on as a kid 40 years ago and the, the close clustering of kids there that played together all the time. I mean, we were fast friends and blood brothers and lifetime buddies. I don't even know where they are now 40 years later. All that changes. I joined a fraternity when I was in college. I don't necessarily recommend that, neither pro nor con. <laughs> but we were brothers, Right? bonded together in the brotherhood of a fraternity. There are two or three of them that I keep in touch with now 25 years later, and they're Christians. Those sorts of things change. Time erases those elements of your heritage, but not so the invisible church. John Berger and I were talking a couple weeks ago about some of these sorts of things that led to, to some thoughts on differences between friends and Christian community. And John made a great point. He said, you know, you can be friends with anybody. With anybody, whether they're Christians or not. And you should be friends with both Christians and non-Christians. You can be friends with anybody. It really just takes a common experience, you know, a hobby or an interest or a neighborhood or, or whatever the thing might be. But in the church, you're actually in community. Because what you share is not just an experience. 
It's a heritage. It's a heritage that goes all the way back to the beginning of God's call on his people for redemption. Because you belong to Israel. You are, if you're in Jesus, an Israelite. And so because of that, you can actually share your heart and soul with each other here, even though outside of these walls, maybe you don't have a whole lot in common. This is the community to which you are called. You know, we prioritize our hobbies and our interests in our neighborhoods over the church so often because we lose sight of the heritage that we have in common. It's a heritage that can't be erased, and it never will be. And the reason that heritage is so important is that it provides you with a rest that can't be disturbed. Remember, now this is chapter 7, an interlude in the scene of the breaking of the seals. It's a parenthetical pause, if you will. Okay, And the four horsemen have brought their evil and suffering, and with that the chaos Uh, The the fifth seal shows the saints seeking refuge under the altar of God, those who had been slain for the word of God and their testimony, specifically the martyrs, but I think even more broadly, all the saints, those who have endured the evil and suffering of this world and who have died and gone to be with Jesus and they're finding refuge with him in the fifth seal. And there they cry out, How long, O Lord, is this going to last? And what does God do? Do you remember? He gives each of them a white robe and he tells them to rest. Okay. Life as we know it is a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle because you always have to prove yourself. You know, we, we're kind of fond of saying we live in a what have you done for me lately kind of world. That's totally true, isn't it? It's even true in the church. You know, I feel it even in the church. It's just hard to escape that culture. You're always having to prove yourself. Our kids are on the verge of high school, and and Mary and I took the preemptive strike of going to visit with the college counselor just to kind of talk and ask the question, what should we be anticipating in these next few years and maybe doing with our kids just to be sure that they're as well-prepared as they can be for the prospect of college? And she said, that's a great question. This is a good time to come and talk to me about that. Here's my answer. As they begin ninth grade and begin to put together their resume that colleges are going to look forward to, and I interrupted her and I said, um, excuse me, did you use the word resume? She had. Now, listen, many of you already know this because you're ahead of me on this parenting scale, but when I was in junior high and high school and anticipating college. They only cared if you made some grades and did pretty well in school, maybe played a sport and took the SAT, and then you were okay. Now you have to have a resume when you're in ninth grade. Are you kidding me? I mean, are we really that much of an overachieving culture that we demand that we prove ourselves this way? Listen, young Christians, you 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds, high schoolers, listen to me. Your parents will tell you this stuff too, I hope, but, but listen. You have embarked on a stage of life in which the world requires that you prove yourself. It does. It has no mercy on a 10-year-old. You've got to prove yourself too. And until the day that you die, Lord willing, that will be a long time, but until the day that you die, it will plague you and it will allow you no rest unless you understand a simple gospel truth. And that gospel truth 
the Bible calls justification. You've heard us talk about it before. We probably ought to talk about it a whole lot more than we do. Justification. An act of God's free grace, the confession calls it, by which He pardons all your sin and declares you to be righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus credited to you by faith. That, my friends, is rest. It doesn't make you righteous. It declares you righteous. And what God has declared is a sure thing. And you know it because of what they wear. Look at verse 13. One of the elders came to John and asked him a question. I think he's just trying to provoke John and get him to think about what he was seeing. And he asked him a question. Who are these dressed in white robes and from where have they come? John. John very wisely deflects the question back to him, although maybe John knew the answer. Sir, you know who they are. And the elder says, indeed I do. And this is who they are. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, and he lists out a whole list of blessings that follows, which you can summarize in one word if you look at those blessings there. One word. Rest. Now, wearing white is a theme, another theme in Revelation, and you see it in a number of different places. And in the letter to the church in Sardis, Jesus said this. He said, Yet you have a few who will walk with me dressed in white, and he who overcomes will be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father, dressed in white. The letter to Laodicea, he said, I counsel you to buy from me white clothes to wear so you can cover your shame. Now you know from the rest of the Bible, even as he says to them, buy from me white clothes, what do they cost you? Nothing. What do they cost Jesus? His life. Buy from me these white clothes that you might cover your shame. White robes, symbolically, that bring acknowledgement before the Father, that cover your shame, that are your justification before the God who made you. White robes that are your rest. It's a simple truth, but it's really hard to believe because it's, let's be honest, too good to be true. We want to prove ourselves. We want to take to God our resume and hold it out to Him and say, okay, God, here's what I did for you. No resumes in heaven, folks. Only justification. Only white robes. Paul wrote it as beautifully as any could in 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you don't know this verse, go home today and memorize it. For our sake, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification. Are you struggling to be free? Or are you free to struggle? You're one or the other, and that's the difference. Because of what he wears, a Christian is free to struggle. And what they wear may illustrate that freedom, but where they are actually makes it real. Take a look with me quickly. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, there are different words for temple in the New Testament. 
There's a word for temple that's more general in its scope, and it refers to the temple as a whole, the outer courts and all the large structure that was the temple in Jerusalem. But there's another word used to refer to temple, and it's translated as temple in the New Testament, and it refers more specifically to the inner sanctuary, the place where Yahweh lived, the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest could go and only once a year and only with some extensive preparations to do it. In Revelation, the only word for temple that's used is that one. The saints are not just in the outer courts waiting to get in, hoping someday I'm going to see God. That's not where they are. They are already in. They are with God. And so these last verses... If you read through them carefully, or even not carefully, you don't even have to be careful to see it. It's a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth, isn't it? He will shelter them with His presence. There will be no more hunger and no more thirst. In other words, you will lack nothing. There will be no more scorching heat. No more tears. No more pain. No more regret. But there will be springs of living water. In other words, there will be rest. Rest. It's confusing, isn't it, to be a Christian and to live in this world. It's hard to be in this world and not of this world. And it can be downright discouraging, to be honest, to be a part of a visible church if you don't also see the invisible church. So, know the multitude that it is. Remember the heritage that it gives. Feel the rest that it provides. And give thanks with all the saints to God who loves His church. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe and help us to trust you and all that you have done in redemptive history and continue to do for our sakes and for our very lives. We pray that as we come to the communion table together that you would knit our hearts together with one another and also with you. Because you, O oh Lord, have called us to belong to you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.